Mark chapter 14, the sermon will be on verses 32 through 52. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came... He went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What we see in our text this morning is that the story of man is coming full circle. We're right back to where it all began for man back in Genesis, we moved from mountain to mountain, from the Mount of Eden to the Mount of Olives, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane. The story of man began in a garden where man, that is Adam, was filled with joy as he was in fellowship and communion with God. But then man sinned and was cast out of that garden. And now the second man, the second Adam, is in the second garden of God, filled with great sorrow, yet he was without sin. But Jesus knew that this was the path forward. He knew that in order to reach the heavenly mount of Jerusalem, he would have to go through the valley. Such is the experience of every Christian, isn't it? 
But he would have to go through this dark valley alone and on our behalf. This is the point of this entire text this morning. While they ate the Passover meal, Jesus revealed to them that the new covenant would be ratified by his blood. And he foretold that they would all fall away. Yet he would fulfill the covenant obligations on behalf of his people. He would do what Adam failed to do. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So after they enjoyed a meal together and he prayed for them in his high priestly prayer, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden along the foot and up along the western side of the Mount of Olives, directly east of the temple. And what did he lead them there to do? Well, he went to pray again, but this time alone. He went to commune with his father. As they were walking into the garden, he told his disciples to sit, uh, presumably closer to the outskirts of the garden, while he prays. But he takes with him Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, a bit closer to his destination. And while he was walking with them, it says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. See, Jesus experienced all of the sinless emotions that we experience, such as sorrow, even in extreme forms. It says, even to death. Even to death. He, he experienced sorrow for many different reasons as well. You think of when Lazarus died. It said that Jesus wept over his death. And he also was in sorrow over Israel's unbelief as he wept over Jerusalem. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorrow and grief are not sinful emotions. As long as we are in this world, there will be mourning and there will be sorrow. But no matter how low we descend into our grief and sorrow, there's always a glimmer of light for us. And the glimmer of light was found in the dark garden of Gethsemane that evening so long ago. Here, Jesus goes through this valley of emotions to redeem us entirely. Right after it says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He literally goes through the valley of the shadow of death, and it was all for us. It was out of love for his church. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. See, Jesus was indeed human. His suffering was real. It wasn't made up. And he understands when we are in our darkest of moments. But here, we must ask the question, what was he so sorrowful about? He told his disciples to stand guard. He said, remain here and watch he knew that there would be those who will be coming for him. He knew that Judas had betrayed him. 
and he was leading a group to capture him. And going a little farther into the garden, about a stone's throw away from his disciples, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. That is the hour of his death. And not because he feared death itself, but because he was distressed over the thought of what his death really meant. His humanness comes out here. And especially in Luke's account where it says that an angel appeared to him to strengthen him because he was that weak in his human nature. But he does what Adam failed to do in the Garden of Eden. He goes to his father when there was trouble. He goes to his father to commune with him rather than submit to the devil's temptations. He prayed so intimately, Abba. In Hebrew, the word for father is Ab. Abba would be the equivalent of daddy. Anyone who's a father, when they hear the name being called out, daddy, we understand the intimacy that is involved. And just like we ought to acknowledge in our prayers, he acknowledges his father's sovereign power and control over all things. All things are possible for you. And then he points out the root of his sorrow. He says, remove this cup from me. What cup? This is speaking of the cup of the Lord's wrath. Found in Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. That God pours out on the nations who are against him. It is that wrath that will be poured out on his son. For the nations and for us. This is what he was in distress over. This is what his death meant. See, Jesus lived his life in complete obedience and perfect communion with his father. He delighted in his father and his father delighted in him. Yet the son vowed before the foundation of the world that he would drink this cup. The cup of God's wrath. By taking on flesh and dying on the cross for his people. What love God has for his children. What love he has for his children. To send his own son into this world to die on behalf of us. But in his humanity, he didn't want to go through it. He wanted to escape, just like any one of us would want to escape. Imagine his own father, whom he loved and obeyed perfectly, will pour out his wrath on him. He didn't want to experience one moment without his father's love. In Luke, it says he was in agony and prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's disagreement on whether or not it was real blood coming from his pores, but I would like you to know there is a condition called hematidrosis, which occurs under extreme physical or emotional stress. This is when uh, the blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture and, and blood exudes from the pores of your skin. See, Jesus wasn't a stoic. He didn't teach a form of 
pietism that says ignore your emotions or your sufferings. He just prayed not to face his father's wrath. But this text is not just here to show us how we should pray and commune with the father. But I believe this passage is clearly here to show us the contrast between Jesus and everyone else. This is a contrast between who Jesus is and everyone else who was around him that evening. Although he prays for the cup to be removed as he is human and would like to avoid suffering, listen to what he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. That is the qualifier for every prayer. Every prayer must be done in submission to God's will. But not only that, this shows us that Jesus is the only one who perfectly submits to his Father's will in all things. It reveals to us the supremacy of Christ and the weakness of men. Because what were his disciples doing while standing guard? They were sleeping. I guess they had too much to eat. He says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? And yes, we can conclude that Jesus was frustrated. We can conclude that yes, he was disappointed with his disciples. Peter should have been watching and praying. In light of the whole context, Jesus still loved them and he would still drink the cup for them. So he says to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What temptation? Temptation to fall away. He just told them that they would all fall away. So he says, pray that you don't because the spirit is willing. That is the human spirit that is willing to follow Jesus. But the flesh or the body is weak. See, your body will succumb to human needs such as hunger or the need for sleep. So they were to rely on God through prayer to sustain them, to keep them awake and watchful. He goes away to pray again, praying the same words. And he comes back two more times to find them sleeping. So he comes back three times. And all three times, they were sleeping. The second time, they couldn't even answer him. And the third time, he's like, you know what? Time is up. It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See, this is a big contrast between Jesus and the rest of mankind. It is a big contrast between Jesus and Adam. The first man betrayed God the Father in the garden and would go on to live and experience the grace and love of God through the gospel. The second man, Jesus, is betrayed in the garden and fully submits to his Father, unlike Adam. Yet he will still face the wrath of God at the cross. Notice the contrast. And consider his disciples. Even when his disciples were faithless, he remained faithful to his mission. If he wasn't, we would not have salvation today. 
Every moment of his life was lived for us, even when he went through such emotional stress in communion with his father. And he would be obedient to the point of death on a cross. And at that moment, you may say to yourself, didn't his father hear or respond to his prayer? He did, but not right away. He had to drink the cup first and face God's wrath. But death would not have the final say. Listen to the author of Hebrews as he says this in chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, he stands alone. He kept checking on his disciples and they were sleeping. Again, he was alone. And we see this even more clearly as his betrayer approaches. So while Jesus was still speaking to his disciples, Judas came with a crowd with swords and clubs. This crowd was made up of Roman soldiers and officers who were sent from the chief priests, scribes, and elders of Jerusalem. And to hand them over, Judas was to give them a sign. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard so he won't escape. But before he gives this sign, in John's account, Jesus asks this crowd, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Or, in the strict translation, I am. Notice he used the great I am phrase that God uses to reveal himself. I am he. And what happens? Out of fear, they drew back and fell down to the ground. They were just following orders. And yet they were confronted with the creator of their souls, and struck to the core by his words and by his presence. Now to confirm that Jesus was the man, Judas went up to him at once and said, with such deceit, Rabbi, and he kissed him. A kiss which demonstrates the affection and the intimacy that is between a disciple and a master. A kiss being a sign of affection would be used as a sign of betrayal. It is often called the kiss of death. Now Jesus would have even say to Judas in Luke 22, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I wonder if he felt any conviction after that. Because this was the most wicked act of betrayal in the history of mankind next to the betrayal of Adam and Eve in the garden. So once they saw the sign, they laid hands on him and seized him. Oh, but you would think somebody is going to stand up for Jesus, wouldn't they? Well, yes. The same one who rebuked Jesus when he said he was going to suffer, be rejected and killed. But then rise on the third day. It was one of his disciples who drew a sword at this intense moment of betrayal and struck the servant of the high priest named Malchus, and he cut off his ear. This disciple was the self-reliant and overly confident Peter, who vowed 
that even though they all fall away, I will not. And so he wanted to prove himself. So he took out a sword and attacked a servant who functioned as an officer of the temple, someone in high authority. He was a little too self-confident because it seems like he went for the servant's head and missed and cut off his ear. Now, to consider the other Gospels would be helpful to understand what was going on here. Because you're probably asking yourself, what were the disciples doing with swords? Right? And who in the world would give Peter a sword? Well, if you go back to Luke's account, Jesus is the one who tells them to carry with them two swords. Why? Well, for self-defense. For self-defense. To protect them against uh, wild animals who may attack them. And also to protect them from thieves. Because he had just told them to pack a knapsack and money bags to bring with them. So they were carrying money with them. And they needed to defend themselves. Now notice, it was only two swords, so not every disciple had a sword. But how come we don't see this in the, the movies about Jesus? They were packing heat, as we say on the streets, right? See, Jesus wasn't against self-defense. The disciples would ask, right before Peter went ahead and cut the guy's ear off, they would ask, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But it looks like they didn't understand what the swords were for. They weren't enlisting in a civilian army for Jesus, right? That wasn't part of Jesus' mission. And mind you, it's not part of the mission of the church today. The swords were for self-defense. And to strike other men in authority, they had no such authority. That wasn't the point of the swords. Jesus would tell Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Forget 12 disciples with two swords. Well, 11 at this point. Then he goes on to heal Malchus's ear. So Jesus is saying two things in that text. Peter, if you kill this man who is in a position of authority, you will receive the death penalty. And rightly so. See, self-defense is a little different than going ahead and attacking someone in authority out of vengeance and rage. Those are two different things. Jesus wasn't against self-defense. He was against being on the offense and attacking someone for nothing or even for something. But this man was in authority. And also he was saying what he said to Peter before, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. This has to happen. You're getting in the way. He tells him, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He must fulfill his work of redemption. Again, we see in this text, he stands alone to submit to his Father's will. And in a way, he says the same thing to this crowd. Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Or in other words, are you afraid of one guy? 
Well, they should be. But they shouldn't worry because he was giving himself up willingly. When has Jesus ever taught violence? When has he ever taught rebellion against authority? If in anything, he taught the exact opposite. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. His disciples should have known better than to attack. Is this what he taught them? When persecution comes from governing authorities. Instead, he goes willingly. He lays down his life for his sheep. He continues by exposing them. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. That is during the day when everyone could see, and you had to give ample proof that it was a legitimate arrest. In Luke, he clarifies, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You see, They could only bring him in at night because it was an illegitimate arrest. And it symbolizes their own darkness of soul. They were children of darkness doing evil in secret. Doing evil hidden from daylight. But he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Not only the scriptures that teach us that the suffering servant was to suffer and die like Isaiah. But also that he was to be the only one who could die for the sins of his people. He is the only one who submits to his Father's will on our behalf. He stands alone. And here he stands alone literally. Remember, it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that prophecy is fulfilled right here. And they all, including Peter, left him and fled. And I would submit to you, even the writer of this gospel, There is the random passage about a young man who followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. This is the same young rich man who approached Jesus back in chapter 10 who asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? I say rich man because linen was a very expensive cloth at that time and only the rich wore linen. So it appears he may have given much of his possessions away as Jesus told him to, except for a linen cloth, which he would lose here because they seized him. And then he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Similar to how Joseph, who was being tempted by Potiphar's wife, fled leaving his garment in her hand. Now there is much symbolism here that we don't want to ignore. In the fact that he ran off naked. Nakedness in the scriptures is often symbolic for shame when exposed to God's presence and holiness. Think of Adam and Eve. The stripping of clothing symbolizes the exposure of sin. And our righteousness is exposed as nothing but filthy rags or polluted garments in the sight of a holy God. In light of this contrast in this text, Jesus and everyone else who was around him, we notice that we are no better than these disciples. We are no better than Mark who runs away naked. So we too need to be stripped of our own clothing of supposed righteousness and be clothed with a new clothing, a new covering, one that Jesus provides through what he will suffer in the coming day. He alone can atone for sin. And he alone imputes his righteousness to us so that we are covered by his blood. 
This is what stands out in this passage. He is all alone and abandoned. And he will go to the cross alone on behalf of those who abandon him. Imagine that. It is like one minister said, the only thing we have to offer to God in and of ourselves is our sin to be forgiven. We have nothing to present before God. The disciples' failure was not as severe as Judas, but it was still a failure. They failed to watch and pray so that they would not fall away. And this all stems from not being aware of one's own frailty. May the Lord reveal to us our own frailty. They thought they were strong when they were weak. This is why Paul warns the Corinthians. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. And the solution is not found in your own strength, but to rely on the strength and the wisdom of the Lord. Because he would go on to say, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Though Jesus would experience the wrath of God alone so that we would never experience it, yet every Christian will experience suffering at some point and in some way. But think of that for a moment. You will never experience what Jesus experienced on the cross. No matter how severe the persecution and no matter how severe the suffering, you will never experience what Jesus experienced on the cross. He would take on the wrath of his Father, which he has liberated you from. You will never feel the agony of the wrath of God because Jesus took it on for us. Yet we don't want to ignore the fact that we will suffer in other ways. Now we're not to look for suffering, but suffering will come. Christians are known as the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted over our sin and the sin we are surrounded by. So the question is, who will we entrust ourselves to? but to the one whom Jesus entrusted himself to, but his father. Peter makes clear that our calling is similar to Jesus' calling. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And that's what happens here, eventually. Though they were all scattered, though they all fell away, the sheep would return to their shepherd. And though the scenery of this text seems to be chaotic, one disciple whips out a sword, the other's running around frantically, but there's also a level of serenity and peace in this text. And it was coming from Jesus. 
Jesus is known as the Prince of Peace, not only because He brings peace to men, He brings peace between God and man, but He becomes our source of peace. He was standing there, serene, ready and willing to submit to His Father's will and lay down His life to His enemies, for His enemies. Because He knew that What he will suffer will not be the end. And he knew that his father would keep his word. He entrusted himself fully to him. He was prepared, even in the face of death, to drink the cup of his father's wrath. Yet he was at peace. He had a resolve to accomplish redemption for weak men like his disciples, for weak individuals like ourselves. He alone was to walk this lonesome road to the cross. Not only because his disciples failed to watch and pray, but also because they can't go any further. They can't accomplish what he was to accomplish. No one would stand with him, and also no one could stand with him. He alone was fit for the cross to bear our judgment. As in Revelation chapter 5, before the throne in heaven, a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And the response was, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing alone as though it had been slain. He alone is worthy. So let us draw near to the throne of grace knowing that He suffered for us. He suffered alone for you, so that now you are forgiven. Amen.